reading of Scripture you'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 7. We continue with the exposition of straight talk about Jesus Christ from the Gospel of St. Mark. And we pick up this uh, morning with verse 24 down through verse 30. The Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. From there he, that is Jesus, arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, Go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Jesus makes it clear that sin's corruption does not come from external things. And now I want you to see this connection. Remember what he's been preaching and teaching about and uh, in this chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, that sin is not in external things. You can't go through some ritualistic washing. That it's not what is outside that goes into a person. But what is in their heart that comes out of a person. So now Jesus is going to show this includes people's external differences. How powerful and transforming if we would believe and understand the gospel in this application. I, I want you to see the application here in this chapter. Because one of the most appalling manifestations of an external outward abstracting of sin into things applies to excluding people as unclean based on their outward differences. How they look, the way they speak, what they eat, where they come from. You're going to see that all these things in this chapter are what Jesus is dealing with. I hope you understand what I was telling you as we come on to the end of chapter 7, get into chapters 8 and 9 of the Gospel of Mark. I keep talking to you about a gospel party. We ought to be celebrating with a gospel party. Now, I don't mean by that the foolishness of the way the world tries to stimulate and stir up and try to convince themselves. I'm talking about what the Bible tells us about worshiping God. That should be our gospel party. Do you come to the Lord's house here week in, week out, Lord's Day in, over time? How many years has it been we've been coming together to worship the Lord together? What I mean by a gospel party is we look with the light upon one another. That we love one another in Christ. That we get excited about seeing one another. Oh, I'm going to get to see the folks at church today. It's a time to celebrate. It's a gospel party when we come together. How else would we ever known one another? How would we have ever crossed paths? How else would you have enriched my lives and become my friends and become my brothers and sisters in Christ to see uh, the youngsters grow up, covenant children, making profession of their faith, becoming communing members. And I, I don't know, I guess I'm going to say it, the rest of us growing old together. <laughs> Isn't there comfort in that? Isn't there joy in that? Isn't there celebration in that? I look forward. As a matter of fact, I get moody when somebody misses church. 
well, so-and-so wasn't there today. I miss them. I care about them. That's what I'm talking about in terms of our celebrating the gospel with a gospel party that Jesus has brought us all together to love one another when we wouldn't have even known one another. And in the world, we see people hating one another. Maybe in your work, maybe in your school, maybe in the neighborhood, maybe in your family, where the gospel has not brought that transformation, people hate each other. They hate each other because of the way they look or because they have a different view or even a different sports team. I've heard of stories in the past. I hope it won't happen this year. Do you know I've heard of stories in the past where uh, in World Cup a, a soccer player made a mistake and went back to their home country and were murdered it happens in the world people hate each other because they look different and they sound different and they eat different food or they act differently and and we're not condoning by this false beliefs and and uh um pagan religions i'm not saying that's okay i'm saying we should have compassion that's what's before us this morning in jesus encounter with this woman remember chapter seven Of the gospel of Mark. The gospel purifies from the corruption of external man-made religious traditions of self-righteous rules and rituals. And the gospel clarifies the internal transformation of the soul by saving faith. This is within the bigger scope of what the Bible deals with in the conflict between self-righteousness by law works versus God's righteousness by grace faith. If you'll remember when we started chapter 7... Verses 1 through 16, Jesus preached the law word of God and applied the new covenant gospel by first clarifying that sin is sourced in the human heart. Man-made rules and rituals of outward washings cannot purify the corruption of the sin-hardened heart shown in all manner of self-righteousness disguised as religious piety. That didn't end with the time of Jesus' generation. Even though Jesus put an end to it by his strong teaching, we still contend with that false teaching today. We went on in verses 17 through 23 where we saw that Jesus protested against the disciples' confusion over the basics of the new covenant gospel, clarifying the need for heart purification, affecting the supernatural essence of the soul. So sin's corruption is not in outward things. Sin's corruption is not in food or drink or personal and household items or clothing and furniture. Sin is sourced in the human heart caused by original and actual sins revealed, identified by God's law. And we have the multiple and repeated call to that in Scripture, referencing over and over, identifying for us what is sin. Not man-made ideas of sin, what God says sin is. Well, that brings us in this morning to verses 24 through 30. Jesus commends the faith of this Syrophoenician woman, a Syrian woman. Uh, As a matter of fact, the location that's given to us in Scripture would be somewhere close around modern-day Lebanon. So here is a a Greek. She was a Greek-speaking cultural Gentile. She was outside of Old Covenant Judaism. And Jesus commends her faith a saving faith as an outward demonstration of her inward grace faith. What are we to learn from this in the context of Jesus talking about it's not what is external that makes you unclean. 
And it's really interesting to see the, the, the play on words and the use of the words here that her daughter has an unclean spirit. Remember the whole concern was about the Pharisees and the, the scribes and their external cleanliness, not being common, not being touched by common people, outward differences, externalizing and abstracting sin rather than dealing with the heart. So what a powerful story in this context. I just don't want you to miss it. Verse 24. And from there he arose. We don't know if he was in Capernaum or there around somewhere, the Sea of Galilee, but he arose from there and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house. We don't know whose house, but he was welcomed and entered there and he wanted uh, no one to know it because uh, he wanted that seclusion, but he could not be hidden. So uh, Jesus secretly retreated from the Jewish borders for Gentile territory. This is intentional. He goes this way purposefully. His desire is to remain secluded. But his notoriety was not limited to the Jewish community. If you go back to chapter 3 of Mark, you'll see there Mark again referenced the broad dispersal and notoriety of Jesus. And what are we to pick up from this as Christian ministers and believers in the church? What are we to take by way of encouragement from this example of Jesus' life? We're to trust the Holy Spirit's secret work in witnessing to the gospel. I believe the Holy Spirit was working ahead of of the Lord Jesus going there. This woman was prepared. Her heart in acknowledging. She in the Gospel of Matthew called Jesus the son of David and then turned to calling him Lord and fell at his feet, even as is recorded here. The Holy Spirit was working secretly. Don't doubt the power of the Gospel. We don't know what people have heard about Jesus in the Gospel. But let's trust the work of the Holy Spirit as we witness to and are faithful to the story of Jesus and to the Word of God. We don't need to make it culturally context. Oh, these people really don't know about who Jesus is, so let's try to fix it and and make a context that they will understand. Or let's somehow um, nuance the Gospel in terms they can get. And it all becomes self-help and self-salvation. Let's just witness to the true Word of God. Let's translate the Holy Scriptures Let's reference the holy law of God and let's tell them who Jesus is, the Son of God. We don't need to try to explain it away. We're not the Holy Spirit. We're to be faithful to the Word. I'm sick of this attempt to somehow culturally nuance and to put the gospel in context of our day or of the foreigners or the non-Christians. You know what non-Christians need to hear? Jesus is the Christ. That's what they need to hear. He's the Son of God. He's the only Savior of sinners. Sin that comes out of your heart and sin by which you are guilty and your your conscience cannot deny it. So let's just be faithful to the gospel, the story of Jesus, as it is here given to us with this pagan Greek woman. You know, we call her pagan. I tell you, I believe she was a child of God. Jesus commends her. I believe she is adopted into the family of God. Syrophoenician, Greek-speaking, but she's no longer a pagan. Her name is known and in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus said, your faith saves you. Your daughter's delivered. You are entered the kingdom of God. Look at verses 25 through 26. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. 
So this is an unnamed woman. Remember, we've, we've met many uh, across the pages, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, many unnamed people, other women who were unnamed who sought out Jesus. But what I want you to pay attention to here is that this unnamed non-Jewish woman has the same human compassion for her little daughter. That's the way it's described to us. We don't know the age of the child. Uh, that could cover a broad uh, spectrum. But remember back in chapter 5, we learned about someone else who had such heartbreaking compassion for their little daughter. He was the ruler of a synagogue. He was an important man. He's given to us by name, Jairus. But he had a little daughter, the apple of his eye, the, the daughter of his affection, the love of his life as, as his little daughter. And he came seeking Jesus to heal her because she was laying at death's door and indeed did die. But Jesus brought her back from the dead. And so the same description is given to us here of this unnamed non-Jewish woman, but she has a little daughter. A little daughter that is um, in the throes of the unclean spirit. And she comes to Jesus seeking her daughter's deliverance. Now, although unnamed, this woman is described in terms of the Jewish traditions of the day as being unclean. She's an unclean woman. Remember, we, we once before that happened. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was on the way to Jairus' home, a woman who was unclean ceremonially because of her blood condition reached out and, and through the crowd. Everybody she touched in the crowd, according to the Old Testament uh, Levitical law, would be unclean. And she touched Jesus, a holy man, a, a teacher, a rabbi. That would have been taboo among the scribes and Pharisees, but not to Jesus. So here is another unnamed woman. And the description that's given to us, according to the Jewish traditions of the day, she would be unclean by her birth and ethnicity. She was a Syrophoenician, a Syrian woman. Uh, Matthew identifies her as a Canaanite, one of the sworn ancient enemies of the Jews. She's one of those people. She's an enemy. She's an ancient, cursed people. She's a Canaanite. She's Syrophoenician. She is by ethnicity unclean. In terms of culture and her, her social uh, connection, she was Greek. Uh, the, the idea is there. She spoke Greek, but she also lived in a Greek-dominated society. She may have been a, a practicing pagan at one time. I don't know. But I know the Holy Spirit worked in her heart and brought her to Jesus. That's what I do know. And I know Jesus spoke the blessing of salvation to her and delivered her daughter. And Jesus commended her faith. So the Holy Spirit was at work here, whether anybody could see it or not, other than Jesus. Even though culturally and socially she's unclean because she is a Greek. She's a pagan. And then, of course, her daughter's condition. She must have done something really bad. God was really punishing her because her daughter has an unclean spirit. All of these things mount up together to make this a despised and shunned and unclean woman. She's not like us. And so we need to take careful heed to this story from Scripture. The Christian ministers and believers in the church need to be reminded and warned that purity and uncleanness in biblical soul terms of the moral law of God must not be confused by supposed human superiority of ethnicity, cultural or social identity, or spiritual and physical afflictions. We run the risk of the same thing. 
saying uh, people are not the same as us. They don't have the same ethnicity that we have. They're sort of, we're, su- we're suspicious of them. They're like, even if they're in the kingdom of God, maybe they're second-class citizens. They're not the same as us. Or how about uh, social and cultural identity? We want to be with the pretty people. We want to be recognized among the movers and shakers. We want to be like the important people in our culture. That's why we want to buy the clothes that they sponsor. We want to buy the shoes and we want to buy drive the cars and we want to go to the places. We're, we're all susceptible to that. Shame on us. Even in the Christian church, we're susceptible to that. And, and what is our attitude toward those who are struggling, who have external spiritual struggles or, or physical afflictions? We have folks who have... Uh, discouragement mentally, uh, even depression and various things of that nature. And and rather than have compassion, we begin to cast judgment upon them. Or people who have external afflictions, and we we default to, oh, they must have done something. God's after them. God's got a heavy hand on them. God has got his finger on them. What did they do? What what is God after them about? We, We all must be warned and cautioned and intentionally Put this stuff away. We have to kill it. Because that's what Scripture says. We have to kill the sin and temptation. You have to fight against it. We often are overly influenced by by the the social uh, condition in which we live. We hear it through the media, over and over and over. It can polarize us. It can begin to to, um, cloud our judgment and confuse our mind. And if we're not careful, it begins to to seethe into our heart. So this is a valuable, valuable lesson, an object lesson of the gospel that Jesus gives us here. Now, the idea that Christianity makes for a better world, I embrace that idea as a matter of fact. I believe that Christianity makes for a better world, but that is only valid by the internal changes to the heart and soul of individuals then collectively living Christ-like lives uh, through the ethical indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's how I see us as a, a church in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ethical indwelling of the Holy Spirit has changed our heart. So that we look upon one another in Christ. We look upon one another in love. I meant it when I said I miss you all. I look forward every Sunday to seeing you. I mean it when we have church lunch and I pray about those, our loved ones, who have gone on to heaven before us. Missing them but not wanting to draw them back. Only wanting to go to where they are. That we'll all go to heaven. I think there's an old uh, spiritual song about that. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Going back to my Baptist roots, I guess. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. I didn't even know I remembered that (laughs) that, uh, song. But that's the point here. That yes, it's because of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Of what Jesus is teaching about here of the internal transformation by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, ethically affecting the way we live. We're not what we used to be, and we're not like the world. Let's show the example to the world of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not fall into these traps. Because the gospel changes 
our various relationships in family and society, in our work and vocation, in our schools, in our political views. We have to be very careful about these things, not to assume and not to add them on to the gospel. But we need to look to the principle and the idea of things, even in reference to economics. You know how the, the gospel changes and affects even the world of economics because people are honest and pay their bills? What did, what did the Apostle Paul say? He who stole, steal no more, but let him work with his hands that he may have something to give to those who are in need? You don't think that's gospel transformation? It affects the way you live. You don't steal and cheat anymore. Or you know it's sinful if you do. It changes you. And so that's what I'm saying about affecting change in the world. It begins within the heart and the collective outworking of that to the people who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit who live differently and behave differently and act differently and most importantly, love differently. We don't love like the world. The world doesn't even use the word the same way. The world talks about love. That There's that uh, passage in Isaiah that I like. Woe be to those that call good evil and evil good. The way the world defines love is not the way that God defines love. So don't be confused by that. Jesus is showing us the outworking of love. And he's showing us in this dealing with this non-Jewish, Syrophoenician, Greek woman who comes seeking him. Look at verses 27 through 28. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. So Jesus does not immediately respond to this woman. Uh, Matthew says that she continually, uh, Mark says also, she repeatedly asked him. Um, Matthew identifies at least three times she came to Jesus. As a matter of fact, even Jesus' disciples got aggravated with her pleading, and they asked Jesus to dismiss her. Will you tell her to go away? Now, sometimes the disciples get exasperated. They get tired. I think sometimes they feel helpless. Remember with the feeding of the multitude, they, they said to Jesus, dismiss them, send them away so that they can go and get food for themselves. We don't have any way to provide for them. I think that they were being considerate there, and I think they were concerned genuinely. Jesus already said that he was going into this region seeking seclusion. Uh, it seemed that he was wanting a break with he and his disciples. And so when this woman keeps coming and repeatedly uh, pleading and begging I think actually the disciples just got exasperated. And they were like, send her away. And I, I can't help but concern myself that part of the reason was she's not one of us. I don't want to, be, I don't want to speculate too much and impugn too much uh, the disciples here. But from piecing together from Scripture and from knowing that Jesus intentionally went into this um, non-Jewish region that he had just been dealing with the externalism of the scribes and Pharisees and it, it, even his disciples got confused over this. If you remember the previous context coming up to this point, I, I want us to be cautioned that in their exasperation, in their tiredness, in their just wanting to have a break from it all, when they said, send her away, if the her was not also, she's not one of us. She's not like us. We need to be careful of that. But eventually Jesus does answer her, 
But he answers her with a humanly humiliating comparison between children and pet dogs. I have to tell you, I just get frustrated and aggravated myself uh, in dealing with a passage like this because these days, people care more about their pet dogs than they do their children. It is messed up. I want to tell you, our culture, our society is messed up. You go to the airlines and you're going to fly on a, a, a trip somewhere. Do you know that dogs have priorities? Pet dogs. People come in with their little pet dogs. Forget their children. They care more about their pet dogs than they do their children. I say that. Um, I'm convinced of it. I've seen the way people act. It is twisted. It's perverse. It's wrong. But nonetheless, Jesus uses this humanly humiliating comparison between children and pet dogs in saying to this woman that his priority is to give the gospel, to bring the good news, to bring salvation uh, to the Jews first. However, this woman's answer is an astounding confession of faith. You should turn to Matthew chapter 15 and read it because Jesus uh, is astounded and, and blesses and confirms her faith. And what we're to learn from this is what God has made clean, we're not to call unclean. And Jesus' disciples were to learn this as well. Now, here's something I want you to be careful about. The exchange between this woman and Jesus. We need to synthesize and take note of it. Remember back in verse 18, uh, Jesus uh, challenged and, and um, was frustrated with his uh, disciples because they didn't synthesize, they didn't put together, and they did not take note of what he was teaching. And so Jesus confronted them about that. And that's what I want us to learn. We do need to put it together. We do need to take note of what happens here. And, and this woman's gospel transformation in her heart and Jesus commending her faith, the Holy Spirit working and preparing for this. And when we read it in the Gospel of Mark, if we're not careful, we simply get the sense of a game of wits. That Jesus thought, oh, she gave a, she gave a witty answer. That's pretty cool. Look at, look at here. When Jesus said, verse 27, Let the children be uh, filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. Now, Jesus is talking about the children being the Jews who received the first promise and blessings and uh, revelations regarding the gospel and preparation, the covenants, and all that came before in preparing for the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. And so he's referring to them as the children and those who are outside of Judaism, he says, as the little dogs, the little pet dogs that are running around their feet. Isn't that offensive? I mean, would you be offended? If I said, well, you know, because you're not from my family, I like you, you're nice, you're kind of like a little pet dog, I like having you around. I mean, it would be pretty offensive, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm going to tell you, I, I, I'm not sanctified enough yet, because if somebody calls me a little dog, I, I might bite them. <laughs> it's not a nice thing. But Jesus is not being crude here. Jesus is, is making a point, and she gets it. Isn't that the wonderful thing? See, this is not a game of wits. She answers him in faith, and Jesus commends and rejoices in her faith because it's saving faith. She says, call me a little dog. I don't care. I know I'm a dog. I know I'm a sinner. Have you ever come to that realization? I know I'm a sinner. I'm worse than a dog. 
That's the kind of humility that this woman expresses. That's what Jesus is rejoicing over. He's rejoicing that she gets it. And rather than taking offense at the analogy, she acknowledges Him as the Savior. I'll take the crumbs, Lord. I'll just take the crumbs of the gospel. I'll just take the crumbs of salvation. What were the the people just recently clamoring for? We want you to feed us every day. We ate of the fish and the bread to our fill. There was excess. There was more than enough. This guy could be our king. We'd never go hungry. We want more and more and more. And what is she saying? I'll take the crumbs. Talk about humility. I'll take the crumbs. Would you take the crumbs of the gospel over the banquet of the world, the death banquet of the world? I mean, that's the contrast that's here. And Jesus is thrilled with her faith. He commends her and her saving faith. He rejoices in her faith that she gets it. So here's a question for us. Is Jesus' comparison to be understood in historical cultural terms that the Jews have a guaranteed ethnic superiority by birthright from Abraham? Let me ask you that again. Is Jesus' comparison here and in the balance of Scripture? Are we to understand in historical cultural terms that the Jews have a guaranteed ethnic superiority by birthright from Abraham? You know what the Scriptures say to that? Absolutely not. Jesus said it. Paul said it. The prophets said it. The Psalms say it. Over and over and over throughout the scripture, there can be no more clearer declaration than that the Jews do not have an ethnic superiority because of some birthright to Abraham. Jesus himself said, I can raise up children to Abraham out of the stones. That's how much your claim to be a child of Abraham means. It's worthless as dirt. Yeah, that's right. The ethnic claim to be a descendant of Abraham is as worthless as dirt before a holy God. Or are we to understand that Jesus is here speaking in covenantal terms that by by salvation history, privileges were previously revealed and believed to the Jews first and then also to the Gentiles. How can you miss it? How can you miss it? This is biblical covenantal terminology. That salvation in its salvation history in progressive revelation, privilege were, were extended to the children of Abraham, to God's development of the Jewish nation. And those extended privileges of the covenants and of the revealed word of God, of the prophets, of God's preserv- preservation providentially of the record and the testimony, even to the coming of Jesus and Jesus' genealogy that includes Gentiles like Rahab and Ruth. How can you miss it? If you understand the gospel, you can't miss it. Away with all this foolishness about the ethnic superiority of those who claim birthright from Abraham. Their birthright is as worthless as dirt. And the ground of the Middle East, of Jerusalem, it's common ground now. Common ground claimed by Jesus Christ as the King of the world. All lands, all ground belongs to him. There's no priority. There's no uh, guaranteed superiority to those who claim descendants from Abraham and claim land holdings in the Middle East. Don't be fooled by that kind of stuff. Don't be led astray by it. 
Rather rejoice in the gospel than what Jesus here shows us. That a woman outside of that land, where the Holy Spirit had gone previously, though she was a pagan and a Greek speaker, and maybe even had worshipped in pagan ways before, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, she sought out Jesus, she came to Jesus, she confessed Jesus, she believed Jesus in the gospel. And Jesus delighted and rejoiced in her faith. And he demonstrated it by commending her and by saving her daughter. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. The unclean spirit's gone out of your daughter. And when she went home, she found her daughter relieved, delivered, saved from the unclean spirit, unclean no more. This scripture passage has caused much discussion and dispute, trying to soften Jesus' shocking words to this woman, which are extremely offensive to human attitudes of assumed superiority or accepted partiality rooted in and cultivated by fleshly pride. See, those two things are contending always. There are those who assume superiority and those who claim an expected partiality. It goes back and forth. It's a war. It's a cultural war. And the gospel is the only solution to that. There is no assumed superiority. There should not be any expected partiality. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Paul says in, in chapter 3 of Romans is, there is no partiality with God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Boy, if we were to take that to heart, how humbling that would be. So Christian ministers and believers in the church must continually seek God's word and to speak God's word after him. Let us not be afraid. Let us not lack courage. But in faith, let us speak the word of God after him with understanding and compassion, with the courage of faith that the offense of the cross never goes away. This is what we're really dealing with. This is what we really have to focus on. Not these external trappings that people try to hide behind. You know, people will try to hide behind these things. They'll try to to condemn the gospel and our Christian faith, hiding behind these things. They'll try to dress us up in false accusations when really it's the offense of the cross. And that's what we need to keep focus on. That's where we need to be um, determined and certain. Yes, the offense of the cross never goes away. But we must not start trying to rename sins to avoid human humiliation. That can obscure the gospel. And so this shocking exchange when Jesus says to this little woman, you're like a little dog. She says, yes, Lord, I'm under the table. I just just want the crumbs, the crumbs of salvation. I sometimes think that way as I'm praying and contemplating the grace and goodness of God and the struggles and frustrations that come, not even externally, more internally, I think, um, from various pressures and sources or dissatisfactions or disappointments or whatever it might be. And I, I sometimes just think, Lord, if I just get in, the crumbs under the table, I, if I just get into heaven, that's enough. I don't understand why it's so hard People turn against the gospel and the struggle is real and, um, and how it breaks your heart and drains you almost to the point of, of just drowning in sorrow to say goodbye and to bury people you love. The world's hard. 
Sin-fallen world is hard. You care about people. People that you love are going through struggles of all kinds. It's the world. We live in a microcosm. We're not exempted from the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. And we're caring for one another and trying to carry one another's burdens and to love one another in Christ. And it's so hard and painful. There is no escaping pain. I I, I have said for many, many, many years, there is no risk-free life. I've also added to that. There is no pain-free life. And I, I will sometimes just give up and say, Lord, <laughs> I just want to get in. If I just get into heaven, that's all that matters. Just give me the crumbs under the table. And so this woman's faith is to be celebrated. It's to be an encouragement and a joy to us. We don't need to try to avoid the offense of the cross. Let us in faith and encouragement believe what happened with this woman. The Holy Spirit went before. And as we witness to Jesus, we don't have to try to rename him or or try to rename sins. Let's use biblical language. Let's don't fall into the cultural trap of word games. Let's don't obscure the gospel because it is the only salvation for a lost world. That brings us to verses 29 through 30, the conclusion here. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And as we pointed out in Matthew, he celebrates her faith, a saving faith. Verse 30, And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. So this episode of Jesus giving the new covenant blessing of salvation, delivering this woman and her daughter from sin's uncleanness, no longer call unclean what God calls clean. So Jesus gives the blessing of salvation to this Gentile woman Um, It represents the heart of the gospel. And this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul expounds in Romans chapter 1, beginning about verse 13 and going through the end of of chapter 3. I I don't have time. I really had hoped we could go there and see the connection. I'm going to ask you to do that. I'm going to ask you to take this story and and, and read it through this passage in uh, Paul's writing in Romans because it is a living example of the gospel that Paul's writing about. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only salvation. It's the only salvation good news for the holy wrath of God for all kinds of people in the world. A Syrophoenician Greek woman, unclean to the Jews, and even maybe a little questioned by the disciples of Jesus. You see, Jesus brings the good news of salvation to her, and it's the only good news for all kinds of people from the holy wrath of God. And then the knowledge and judgment about sin is not a comparison of person to person. I know you know this, but don't you see that demonstrated? I mean, in a very real way, fleshed out as a living object lesson of the gospel in this woman. It wasn't a comparison of person to person. She's Syrophoenician. She's Greek. She has an unclean, afflicted, demon-possessed daughter. But it's not a comparison of person to person. It's not a comparison to her and the disciples. not a comparison to her and the Pharisees and the scribes. That's what Jesus was making. It's not by external comparison. But rather, it is personal accountability to God. And the conscience-encoded, revealed law of God. This is what Paul writes about. Those who are Gentiles have the conscience-encoded works of the law of God. 
And those who are Jews receive the written revelation of the law of God. But the law of God is operative, and it's by the law of God that is the knowledge of sin. This woman had knowledge of her sin. Yes, the Holy Spirit went before and worked in her to acknowledge this. But so he does in everyone. Let us not doubt it. And then, as all people are judged guilty before God, this is where Paul's going in Romans, the first three chapters there, as all people are judged guilty by God. There is none holy, not one. There's not, not one that's righteous. No, not one. There's not one who has not sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As all people, Jews and Gentiles, everybody is judged guilty before a holy God, so the only way of redemption from sin's guilt is the same for all people. I know you know this, but let us not grow dull in believing it. This is powerful. This is what we need to hear and be reminded of. This story of Jesus dealing and saving this woman in the context of Mark chapter 7 is a living example, object lesson of the gospel of what Paul writes in the first three chapters in Romans. And it's the same for us today. We hear all of this confusion, all of the hate language, all of the struggle and uncertainty and difficulty. There are thorny, confused problems. But of all this confusion and of all of our social and political stress, there's not an easy solution. And we may not even agree on our perspective on some of these things. But this is where we must rise above it all with the power of the gospel and the compassion of caring about people's souls and their need of salvation first. You hear about children being abused and politically gamed for the immigration thing. Did you have a thought about the children's souls? You hear evil people who despise everything about God claiming to have been Sunday school teachers. Did you have a thought about how dark in sin is someone that way and to pray for the light of the gospel? To be moved with compassion? Yes, it is a a, a tense issue of soul and conscience to deal with the evil that is around us and the uh, exploitation. Jesus got irate with the exploitation that was going on in his day of people. He did not speak and mince his words about condemnation against sin and evil and uh, manipulation and using people. He did not mince his words about that. But the compassion always rose above and guided him, even in his words of condemnation. And so the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ makes it clear that sin's corruption does not come from external things, including people's external differences. But by his blessing, the faith of this Gentile woman and her daughter, Jesus gives a living object lesson of the gospel. I hope you see that in this context. To me, it is so astounding. When all that Jesus has been teaching up to this point, he now demonstrates it to them in the salvation of this woman and her daughter. Well, there's more to come. I told you, we're in a, having a gospel party here in the Gospel of Mark. And we come uh, next week to Jesus giving us another object lesson uh, by way of a healing. It's peculiar and interesting. 
There are curious things about Jesus healing this man. And it, it applies, I believe, in context to clarifying the gospel, what we are to believe and what we are to say. So we'll look at the conclusion, verses 31 and following of chapter 7 um, next week, uh, continuing on with a straight talk about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I, I, I believe this was a good message for preparing us to come to the Lord's Supper this morning too. 